Right, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're going to be continuing our series going through the book of Ecclesiastes together. This morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17. It's printed for you in the ESV translation, which I'll be using. That's on page 10 in your order of worship if you want to use that. And again, we don't have any slides this morning, so you're going to want to turn there. We also have a children's version on page 11. I'll be referring to that as well. You're, of course, welcome to use your smartphones if you have the ESV app or turn there in your own Bible. If you're using your own Bible, Ecclesiastes is not that familiar to you. Open your Bible about halfway. That's usually the book of Psalms. And you go a couple books to the right, you'll find Ecclesiastes. So as you're turning there, I want to tell you about a friend of mine in grad school, seminary, who just, he had it all planned out. We were sitting around talking about our callings as ministers and what we hoped God would let us do one day, someday. We're still kind of geeking out that people would actually pay us to do this, and that's a possible career path. And he all of a sudden just announced so authoritatively, well, I'm going to be an RUF campus minister for 10 years. And then I'm going to be a pastor for 10 years. And then I'm going to teach pastors for 10 years. And then after 30 years, I'll reevaluate and see what the Lord wants me to do. And I was just in awe that he was so sure of himself. And I I didn't get the memo. I didn't know we got to plan our life out that specifically and that, you know, know, um, authoritatively. I thought there was a different chess master who moved the pawns around. I didn't didn't know I got to be the chess master. And so I was just like, wow, that's really great. Um, And I can tell you after 23 years since that conversation, he was so wrong. Um, Yeah, he had a plan. But life and circumstances changed his plan. Because that's what life does, right? We're a very similar spot in the book of Ecclesiastes today. This pastor philosopher, probably great King Solomon himself, seeks to answer the question all the way back at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, what do we really gain from all this striving in our life? He, he narrows that quest th- throughout this book, and now he's narrowed that quest to a very specific question under that, and that's this. What's the point of trying to live well, of trying to walk in wisdom? What really is the point? Or another way to ask the question is, why plan your life and then live your plan if the same junk happens to those who live haphazardly with no plan. See, he's trying to understand life under the sun, and all he comes up with is frustration because he can't control life. Last week we saw, verses 1 through 11, that he used his vast resources to indulge his flesh, to fulfill everything he could to find happiness and control. All the fulfillment that a Hollywood lifestyle could offer, unlimited resources to to satiate every desire he might have, but it couldn't satisfy his soul. And so he pauses now in the text, and he makes this attempt to analyze, okay, what have I done so far, and what has worked, and what has not? And this is a good text for us because we are all on this quest. We're all analyzing, we're all dreaming of a better life, how we can have more fun, less stress, more joy, less pain. And we're trying to figure out how to get there to that place, right? Deep down, we fear that we may never find what we're looking for. So with that background in mind, would you please turn with me to page 10 or your own Bibles there, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This is God's word. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to a text like this that is so candid about the frustrations in life, Lord, we pray that you would lower our guards and help us to admit how frustrating life can be. And then, Lord, would you help us to see the solution that you offer in the grace of your son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves as we truly are and to see the beauty of Jesus as he truly is. And we ask this, Lord, in his great name, amen. So our theme for today, where we're gonna go is this, is that neither the wise nor the fool can control life, but they sure do try. See, what happens is this, is that when we're looking for happiness, we try, we try to find control. And so we'll, we'll try things like equality we're going to see in this text, or, we'll, or maybe amnesia will work, but in the end we'll see that we have to go for security. So he jumps right in here in verse 12 by telling us that he's looking for some sort of control in his life. Solomon realized that he is uniquely positioned with, with all his resources he could indulge in everything he wanted to do in verses 1 through 11. Or now, with his famous God-given wisdom, he recognizes, I'm also uniquely positioned to figure out if life under the sun really works. He basically asks in verse 12, if I can't make it work with wisdom, who can? And so he tells us in verse 12, he's going to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And the way the original works, it's really two things, not three like it has in English. He's going to consider wisdom and he's going to, let's just translate it, mad folly. Two opposite ends of the spectrum, how to do life. So he's going to scour the self-help section of the bookstores. He's going to really figure it out. He's going to listen to all the popular mindfulness podcasts and he's going to learn what to do. He's going to sit down and watch Dr. Phil and figure out life. He's going to leave no stone unturned, looking for control over the frustrations of life. Would you like some control over life? Would you like some stability, some, some certainty? Well, then Solomon is our boy here. Let's see what he has to say to us. And the first thing he considers, I'm going to call equality in verses 13 through 15. And he starts out this section here by coming up with the well-duh of the entire Old Testament. He says in verse 13, basically, you know, I think it's a lot better to live thoughtfully than to live haphazardly. Well, gee whiz, Solomon, thanks. Did you use all your divine wisdom to come up with that one? But then he gets a little deeper at that point, having kind of given this a broad theme. And as he cues up Elanis Morissette's singing ironic in the background, he observes in verse 14, you know, Mr. Practical Do-Good follows all the rules, and Mr. Rebel breaks all the rules, and yet the same circumstances happen to them both. 
And then he lands on verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. See, he says the wise should have an advantage, but they don't. Wisdom can't control life. Boys and girls still in here, here's how he put it for you. If you want to look on page 11 at your translation of verse 15, here's how he put it. It says, even though I am good at life, there's no point to my wisdom. I can't control what happens to me any better than a foolish person can. That's so frustrating. Boys and girls, let's say you decide, you know what? I'm going to give up playing with these toys for now. I'm going I'm to put down my screen and give up a, that little bit of screen time I'm given. And you know what? I'm going to do my chores without being asked. First of all, thank you for that. I'm going to use my yes ma'ams and yes sirs. I'm just going to be good. And you get to the meal that night and your little brother has just been a little brother. He has just been horrid all day. And at the end of dinner, your mom cuts a big old slice of dessert for you. And then she cuts a slice of dessert for him, too. And you're like, why was I so good if he gets the cake, too? Forget it. That's exactly where Solomon is. That's what's going on here, boys and girls, in this text. He's like, if having some sort of plan or thoughtfulness in life is better, shouldn't there be some sort of payoff? But there isn't. As Jesus said, it rains on the just and the unjust. And this lack of control makes having wisdom meaningless, Solomon says. This is personal for him. He's basically saying, I should be happy. I have supernatural wisdom from God, but I'm not any better at fixing my life than that fool over there. In my 20s, the Lord brought me this older man who became a mentor to me. I was very grateful for him. And one of the things he used to say to me a lot, because I had a tendency to whine. Um, I'm sure the church staff can tell you I've gotten over that. Anyway, he used to say to me, Sean, you can't help it if a bird lands on your head, but you don't have to let it build a nest there. Okay, translation, if you don't speak country, is you can't control everything that happens in your life, but you can control how you react to it. That's wisdom. And that's what Solomon says. I've done that. I have wisdom. I've controlled my reactions when circumstances have gone sideways on me. And it turns out I'm still no better off at controlling my life than the fool. What's the point of all that wisdom? We've all felt that way, haven't we? We've all been scrolling through social media and someone posts something unwise. And someone who we look up to posts something in response even more unwise. I'm like, that person is considered successful and mature, and they, they say that? Okay, I can't get away with that. I mean, I mean, this issue, this question, this feeling is why people in their 20s abandon the family business and go off to study medieval French poetry. This is why midlife crises happen. This is, this is why we do that, because it seems like even if you live a life of responsibility, you don't get a leg up over the irresponsible. So if you were financially prudent, if you did deny yourself, so often circumstances make it so the spendthrift turns out just as well off as you did. I'm reminded of a little vignette from that beautiful show that really gets modern life. Don't throw anything at me. The Simpsons, where Homer comes in one day, he's like, Marge, I figured it out. We're going to be rich. And she goes, 
Homer, this isn't one of those get-rich-quick schemes again, is it? He goes, no, I'm going to do it through savings and wise investment. (laughs) See, what's the point of sacrificing, of doing it right, if the one who makes no sacrifices, who lives indulgently, is in the same place? It's so frustrating. And so what do we do? We try to bury that frustration by shopping more, accumulating more, overeating, indulging our darker desires because we're afraid that this frustration out there is all there is. We have no control. And he gets to the end of verse 15. He says, it's vanity, frustrating, meaningless, vapor. You can't grab onto it. And that frustration leads him to hopelessness. So he's considered equality, how everything happens to everybody the same, and yet this still doesn't help me understand So to help him feel in control, he now wants to consider, I'm going to call amnesia in verses 16 through 17. He says in verse 16, there is no enduring remembrance. He's not just concerned that no one's going to remember him. It's much deeper than that in his culture. Here's what's going on. So as many of you know, we used to live in the Boston metro area. We were church planters up there. And whenever someone would come to visit us, one of our go-to spots to take people was to Lexington and Concord. Oh, we would take them to Lexington so they could see like, you know, all the American Revolution stuff, and they would take them to Concord, especially if they were literary nerds like us, because you can go see the actual house that Nathaniel Hawthorne lived in. And you actually can find out why Benjamin Moore calls that paint color Hawthorne yellow, because that's the color of Hawthorne's house. Uh, you can go see the house where Louisa May Alcott grew up, the house they actually filmed in the la- most recent um, Little Women movies, that you can go see that house and walk through it right there. You can go see the little area on Walden Pond where Ralph Waldo Emerson was. It's really great. You can also go to the Concord Cemetery, and you can see all three of those people's graves. They're right there. And what's amazing is it didn't matter how often we went there, it didn't matter what time of year we went there. Whenever we would go to Louisa May Alcott's gravestone or, or Ralph Waldo Emerson or Hawthorne's, there was always, always, always a little pile of stones on each one of them. Maybe you are a hiker. You ever notice how when you finally get to the top of a significant mountain on a hike, there's a pile of stones there. There's this weird thing in the Old Testament where God says, I just did something significant in your life. Make a pile of stones. Throughout the Old Testament, God tells people to stop what you're doing and make a pile of rocks. And he goes on and he tells us, he says, that way, generations from now, when your children ask you, hey, mom, what's up with the pile of rocks? You can tell them the story of the great thing I did. And that's called in the Old Testament, a remembrance, a memorial. We still call it that today. And that's what Solomon is talking about. He's not talking about, I just want people to remember me. He's saying, I want God to do something significant in my life. I want a pile of rocks where people will tell the story. Oh, that's when God did this for Solomon. This is the language of legacy. He wants people to know he was here. And what he's saying is this, there's no pile of rocks in my life where God did a great thing. Nothing significant and noteworthy about me will be remembered. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, you may be thinking right now, it's okay to to be a little sarcastic, because I was too. Oh, poor, poor, pitiful Solomon, right? Must be tough, be the richest king ever, have all your fleshy desires met, be world famously wise, get to build the temple and do the worship service that inaugurates the whole thing. Yeah, stinks to be you. God hasn't used you at all. I'm sorry, here's your tissue. But if you stop and think about it, these people in the Bible are just like us. And so often it doesn't matter what we've actually done in life. It matters what's come before us. Solomon is looking over his shoulder at dad. 
at King David. And there's this huge shadow of greatness in battle, of greatness in governing, of greatness in the Lord. And Solomon has lived his entire life in that shadow. And so in spite of his wealth, his women, and his wisdom, he thinks, I'll never be as great for the Lord as my dad. I will not have a monument of the great work of the Lord like my dad did. Whose shadow do you live in? Against whom do you measure your life and feel short? Each of us struggles, don't we, to make our life matter, to feel like we've done something. We want to know that the good we've done will be remembered, that death won't destroy everything about us. But that is the frustration of life under the sun. We're alienated from our creator, and so we feel this lack of significance. We feel that we ourselves are vapor, that we're not here, that we're here today and gone tomorrow, and there's nothing. That's what Solomon says here. No one will remember any good that I do. It's the language of mattering, of being significant, of people recognizing that I was here and I mattered. I made some sort of contribution. I remember when I was in corporate sales, um, they brought in this uh, motivational speaker for the sales department, which, by the way, if you're in upper management, can I just tell you, um, we don't care. Increase our commissions, okay? Um, so anyway, they brought this guy in, this motivational speaker, and it's awkward because there's only like, you know, a hundred of us are in this room and he's right there in front of us and he talks about the dash. He's trying to be all motivationally and he's talking about the day. He kept talking about the dash, the dash. And he tells this story about how he's researching his ancestors on Ancestry.com and he wants to know his heritage and he keeps finding all these names and then all the names, all they have is a birth date and a death date and in between is the dash. And he goes, don't you want to have more than a dash in your life? And then he told the story about how every once in a while he would come across an ancestor who they had more than the dash. They had a story. They had a narrative. They had done something with their life. And so he challenged us to do more. I guess, I, I don't know, we sell more widgets until we make more money and therefore we're significant. I, I, I didn't get it. I don't know. We just, we just wanted to get back to work. But anyway, what he's saying here is what Solomon is saying here is that I want more than a dash. I want a story. I want a narrative. I want someone to say, oh, Solomon, he did, and then have a list. I want to be remembered. But he realizes under the sun that death makes his story of wisdom not matter. Look with me at verse 17. What does he say? Where does he arrive? He says, so I hated life. Do you love how honest the scriptures are? Anyway, verse 17, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Life under the sun brings him pain and misery. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls there, verse 17. This life under the sun breaks my heart. I hate it. It's like trying to catch the wind in my hands. See, in verse 16 through 17, he's moved beyond frustration to hating I really do, I said it so quickly, but I really do love how honest the scriptures are here. This points to the reliability of the Bible. If this is a myth that they're making up, this is not how you describe your idealized king. He's super rich, he's super wealthy, and he's super conflicted. No, 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 don't do that. He's super awesome, never has any problems. That's how you do PR when you're making a myth up, right? But if he was an actual person like you and me, frustrated by the realities of living in a sinful world and seeing it 
This is exactly how he would react. It's exactly how a real person would react. You wouldn't make this up about Solomon. He's just like us. He gets so frustrated with life in this world that even though he's in a relationship with God, do not let your religious mind punt to say, well, this must be before Solomon was really right with God. No, we don't know that. But I know that I get frustrated. And I know many of you Christians get frustrated too. He has wisdom from God. He's in a relationship, but he's so frustrated that he cries out like a ranting teenager. I hate this place. See, it so profoundly resonates, doesn't it? Because that's the human experience. A Roman philosopher named Lucretius, writing about 80 years before Jesus was born, completely plagiarizes this and popularized it for the Roman audience. He said, death stains everything we do in life. It, needs, it leaves no clear pleasure and leads to a great hatred of life. Just copy-paste, man. Control-C, Control-V, right out of Ecclesiastes. No one caught him until now. See, if all we have is this life, knowing we will die and be forgotten breaks our heart. Life under the sun leads us to despair. A gentleman named Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox, and he went through all the data about the quality of Americans' lives, and, he, and it really bothered him that he could quantify how our standard of, lot of living has gotten better and better and better. And yet, survey after survey, the data show that Americans are more miserable and more miserable. And it really bothered this author. And so he spends this whole book trying to figure this out, and the conclusion he comes to is, even though people grow steadily better off, yet seemingly no happier... It's because there's a baseline anxiety in all of our hearts. And that anxiety is the fear of death. Everything our country has provided us, yet we're still empty inside, aren't we? And as a culture, we become more cynical and upset than ever before. Or an ancient book writing way back in the 70s, 1973, Pulitzer Prize-winning book by Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death. He said that people in modern civilization, we actually live in denial of our own mortality. We deny that death is out there. And so most of our cultural forms, especially entertainments, they exist to distract us from death. And here we are 50 years later, and so few of us get off TikTok, turn off Facebook, quit watching the game, just put the screen down because our world is so full of beauty and boredom, laughter and lament, birthday parties and funerals, and it breaks our heart. We just want to be distracted. And if there's nothing else past our death, if the world under the sun is right, if this is just the way things are, if there's nothing left, what really is the point? I mean, let's get rid of all the religious baggage. I know we're in a church, but let's just... You know, let's, even non-Christians and non-religious people, let's be candid. If eventually the sun is going to burn up one day, someday, as astronomers tell us, and everything we've accomplished as a species is going to disappear, and no one's ever going to know on a galactic scale humanity ever existed, why should you give your blood, tears, toil, and sweat to solve big problems? Why should you not just be selfish? Why not just look out for yourself and your own interests? It's all going to burn anyway. That's where Solomon is. He's reached the end of wisdom. He was divinely gifted for wisdom, and yet he has no answer under the sun. And so he just hates life. 
And so with Solomon, we've considered equality, we've considered amnesia, and neither of them gives control in our life. But we get to consider something that Solomon only dreamed of and couldn't consider. But we get to experience, namely, security. I've said before that Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And the question of this text is the question we looked at a couple weeks ago from the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, who was famous and successful in his lifetime. At 50 years old, he asked this question, is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death cannot destroy? I want you to think about the famous New Testament story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. There's this wonderful moment after Lazarus has died that Jesus gets there and people are weeping like crazy and Jesus is moved when a Lazarus sister falls down at Jesus' feet, grabs his ankles and screams out to him, why weren't you here? You could have fixed this. And John eleven thirty three 33 tells us that when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the best way to translate that into the modern vernacular is Jesus was heartbroken and ticked off. But Why? I mean, Jesus, if you know the story, he's already told his disciples, oh, Lazarus has died, we're going to go and we're going to raise her from the grave. And he takes the two-day journey to get there, and he gets there, he knows he's going to fix it. Why on earth would he be so upset? I understand why everybody else is upset. Why would he be so upset in that moment when he already knows, I'm going to fix this? Because instead of hating life and having no solution like Solomon, Jesus Christ, who is the solution, hates death. And he's going to do something about it. He raises Lazarus. But even better, Jesus will go on to give up his life, voluntarily dying for his people. And since the rest of the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, Jesus Christ, as the sinless God-man, did not earn those wages. He did not deserve to die. And so another part of the New Testament tells us that the grave literally could not hold on to Jesus. And so he burst forth in his resurrection because he did not deserve to die and he defeats death forever in his resurrection. And when we are united to him by faith, our death is not the end of us. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he becomes, our, he becomes the Lord to us, the resurrected Lord, and our life is secured inside of him but it gets even more profound than that. We're united to the life of Jesus, but Romans 6 tells us we're also united to the death of Jesus. That th those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're united to him in the likeness of his death, which means that he died the death we deserve to die. So in him, stick with me here, in him, we have already died that death we deserve to die for sin. We don't have to hate our life because in Christ we died and have been risen and now Christ hides our life. One of my, most, my, one of my favorite verses, I messed up, I didn't get it to the people in time to get it in the bulletin. Sorry, it's Colossians 3, 3. It says this. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That old person died at the cross of Christ and was born again. So secure, it says, your life is hidden with Christ. We could literally translate this, your life is encrypted with Christ. 
As long as he lives, we are so secure and safe, never to be hacked, never to have our data compromised. We are encrypted with Christ. So even though we still can't control the circumstances around us, we know that Jesus hides our life and keeps us safe in him. See, whereas Solomon worried about not being remembered and having no legacy, Jesus gives us significance because in him, we are then adopted as actual children of the creator God. Heirs of the king awarded all the promises. Heirs are never forgotten. They're honored and they're remembered. Oh, dear Christian, that is all you have in Jesus Christ. In the frustrations of this world, fall back on that grace of God when this world makes you wonder if you matter at all. Look at the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and see that he willingly died to bring you into his family. He thinks you're that significant. That's a remembrance that will cure your frustration. Now, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you have non-Christian friends or relatives you're in conversation with, you can have all that as well. Really think about your life and those around you. Ask yourself, why is everyone I know so dissatisfied? Why does it seem like so many people are just so frustrated and ready to complain about something? Well, this is actually a thing. It's called divine discontent. It's because we were made for a different world, for something better. And because we were made for something better, we are not satisfied with this here. That discontent in your heart is God's grace to you, helping you to want something better, to seek something better. So you can try to hide your life in this world through trying to get control. Maybe, maybe be a good citizen. That'll give you some control. Or, or maybe you, you do it through community service or, or through indulging your fleshly desires. But eventually, it will make you hate life. Instead, you can have significance, acceptance, and inheritance in Jesus. You still won't have control over the circumstances, but in the gospel, you'll have resources to deal with those circumstances. Oh, the grace of the gospel is yours for the taking. Take your frustration, take your discontent, and turn to Jesus in faith and trust. Ask him for help. He will give it to you, and you can hide your life in him. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, texts like this are hard because deep down we don't want to admit how frustrating life is. It feels somehow like we're lacking faith. But Lord, would you help us to be honest about how discontent this world makes us? And then Lord, would you use that discontent to drive us deeper and deeper into the cross of your son, Jesus, that we may know we are united to him in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Lord, for those of us here today who know you, I pray that you would take us deeper into the beauty of Jesus that we would sense the freedom we have and the release from frustrations. And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know your son Jesus, that as he has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sin, raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise that as he is lifted up, you will draw all people to him. Would you do that even now, Lord, and cause many to confess and believe? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.